For the last decade or so, the UFC has been the premier MMA promotion in the entire world. And one thing they do very well is keep secrets. The promotion runs a tight ship about how it is they do what they do, making sure to keep the man behind the curtain obscured while you watch the light show. But this is a fascinating business, cage fighting. And so I did the research this week to give you a look at some of the inner workings of our favorite MMA organization. We're going to be going through some lesser known behind the scenes facts, occurrences, and processes that you might have always wondered about or didn't even know existed until right now. It's time to see how the sausage gets made. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and boom, Crypto.com has arrived at MMA On Point. That's right, the world's fastest growing crypto app is now an official sponsor of MMA On Point. Always wanted to start your journey into crypto? Join us using the link crypto.com slash app slash MMA On Point for a $25 crow deposit upon sign up. And after reserving a metal visa card, start trading and withdraw. More on that later, but for now, here are 10 fascinating backstage UFC details you never knew. Number 10. Payouts deemed a trade secret. The business of MMA might be as big a fascination to the fan base as the fights. We all love to play matchmaker in our heads, and anytime a contract dispute between the fighters and the promotion is made public, fans, media, and the like love to speculate about what will happen, what should happen, and who's getting the better deal in the matter. One area that's particularly of interest to fans is fighter pay. It's been a hot-button issue for ages now, and while there are quite a few commissions that require purses to be made public, that has been changing as of late. INSAC stopped releasing those numbers just last year, and in April of this year, MMA Junkie discovered that the Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulations will no longer be making payouts available publicly as the UFC has deemed them a, quote, trade secret. A Florida state bill that was passed in 2014 allowed for promotions to keep proprietary business information confidential, a bill the UFC lobbied to have passed. Oddly, the promotion only recently started considering payouts under the proprietary business information label, as plenty of Florida cards since 2014 have had disclosed payouts. Six of the seven, in fact. It was only the most recent, UFC 261, that the promotion decided should be labeled a trade secret. Or maybe they just realized that, that would fly from now on. Who knows? Just don't expect to see any purse figures from Florida from now on, and it would appear, if it were possible, the UFC would rather not disclose them at all. Number 9. Dana had a meltdown after selling the UFC. The public persona of Dana White is that he's fairly unflappable. I mean, sure, he can get angry about things, and he certainly expresses it whenever he feels like, but by and large, through the many growing pains of the sport over the last 20-some-odd years, White's been a relatively level figure. He doesn't seem the type to shake easily or lose his drive, but when Zufa sold to WME IMG back in 2016, the UFC president had a bit of a meltdown. White's spoken several times now about how immediately after the sale, he locked himself in a hotel room like Howard Hughes and lost his mind for a bit. In case you don't get the reference to an early 1900s business mogul, Hughes suffered from OCD, and that in part along with some other eccentricities led him to being pretty reclusive in his twilight, often holed up in places for long periods like a movie studio screening room he stayed in for several months, and a year at a hotel where he would sometimes have staff leave sandwiches in trees that he would retrieve at night. It doesn't sound like Dana went that far, but he admitted to not sleeping or eating for several days, unsure about a future where he wasn't working with longtime partners, the Fertitta brothers. It would be Lorenzo who would eventually get White to come out of the hotel room and address the UFC staff about the sale. Dana called the incident a weird thing and a weird time, never believing something like that would happen to him. Well, it would certainly appear he got over it. Number 8. ESPN loved the Reebok deal. If you've watched this channel for any amount of time, you surely know of the UFC antitrust lawsuit that is currently ongoing, and you're also aware that the discovery phase of that legal action has given us a treasure trove of inside info about how the UFC works behind the scenes. One promotional executive who was interviewed for a deposition was Lawrence Epstein, the company's COO. A portion of the interview related to the much maligned Reebok sponsorship deal that went down back in 2014. Fans and fighters certainly had more than a few words to say about the change, both aesthetically and as it pertained to fighter pay, which was often supplemented at the time by individual sponsorships on fight gear. But according to Epstein, after making the landmark deal that would last for seven years, one of the first calls the UFC got was from ESPN, who told the executive that it was the best decision the promotion had ever made, and that it was 
would certainly lead to more coverage of the UFC on their network. It sounds like it was exactly this that the UFC had in mind when they went looking for the deal in the first place. The COO mentioning specifically brands like Condom Depot being a problem for the UFC and creating the tax on fighter sponsors in order to weed out smaller, less reputable brands, which was their first attempt at cleaning up fighter gear. ESPN must have been pretty damn impressed by the move, as Epstein said, considering their partnership that would begin in 2019 directly after the UFC left Fox Sports. Number 7. The Fighter Broadcast Team Meetings You ever hear one of the commentators during a card say they were talking to ex-fighter earlier in the week, and that they said during camp they blah 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 with so-and-so, nobody can stop me, etc, etc. It's thrown out there so casually it sounds like the two just bumped into each other at the Hotel McDonald's on Tuesday, and the fighter came up to them and started spouting off cliches. Or how about those cool walkout segments Megno Levy and Laura Sanko do that seem like they know the fighter's entire life history? Well, as you might have guessed, this information isn't just organically discovered through Google searches and chasing down fighters at the hotel. Why are you running? Why are you running? Every Wednesday before a card, the entire broadcast team as well as the producers jump on a call with every single fighter that will be competing at the event. It's here that the broadcast team gets to inquire into what exactly has been going on with the fighter, what they want to do next, how they see the fight going, every member of the team gets a go, so there's a ton of info being shared by these fighters that the producers and presenters are well aware of going into fight night, meaning a lot of times the narrative you're hearing was formed as a result of these interviews, and a commentator may even know what a winner might be interested in saying during their post-fight interview them in that direction, as well as the producers who are always in the broadcast team's ear during the show. One such meeting was secretly recorded recently featuring Diego Sanchez and future obscure MMA trivia answer Joshua Fabia. It's a real doozy if you ever get a chance to check it out. You guys are like the tough guys and all this stuff. If nobody's going to you're talking about. Number 6. How the UFC Schedules Another deposition that was given as a result of the antitrust lawsuit was by the big man himself, Lorenzo Fertitta. As you can imagine, he has all kinds of insights into the inner workings of the UFC, and an area I found fascinating was how they handled other events, other sports. While it's a no-brainer to make sure the UFC doesn't put on a pay-per-view the same night as a massive boxing event that would force their audience to likely choose to buy one or the other, say a Floyd Mayweather or Manny Pacquiao card, both fighters were mentioned by name by the promotion's former owner, the UFC brass considered far more than that. Their key demographic, males 18 to 34, spend money and time on a lot of other things. And as a result of their research, there were considerations about not just when, but where to place major cards that factored in the NFL schedule, the NBA, MLB, and very specifically, Fertitta mentioned March Madness being a period of time to avoid putting on a card that they thought would sell well. I went back through their best-selling pay-per-views, and only two cards I could find during the tournament were big sellers, and both were Canada-based cards that featured GSP as the headliner, but sold under a million. No other best-selling pay-per-views had ever taken place during the actual tournament. Even more fascinating, Lorenzo went on to explain that the promotion would also avoid the weekends of major movie releases that they felt would target their key demographic heavily. I guess Connor's lucky he never had to go up against the Avengers. Number 5. Dana isn't always cage-side When you watch the UFC enough, you learn pretty quickly that Dana White is cage-side with a handful of VIPs and or other ownership at pretty much every single card. Who sits next to him or shows up might change, but Dana is very much a mainstay. Fighters often look over to the UFC president after their fight like they're seeking a approval from Shang Tsung to finish their opponent so that they might advance in the Mortal Kombat tournament. But what you might not realize is that the camera only ever cuts to Dana during the main card because most of the time he's not actually by the cage. White regularly views the prelims from a private room in the back where he gets ready for the show, hosts guests, and deals with whatever issues may come up as the card moves along. This entry is unique because a very long time ago I was asked to join Dana during the prelims backstage and it was a pretty awesome experience. What's it like, Ron? The room was very comfy, there was food, a screen for us to watch the fight 
lights on, and throughout the early part of the show, White did his thing. Watching the event, speaking with various executives as they came in and out, CM Punk stopped by for a moment, this was before he was in the UFC, and very graciously Dana introduced me to an executive from Fox, who he had watched one of my videos, which is how I ended up on TV for a while. I don't know, Ron. That sounds kind of crazy. Come the main card, Dana was suited up and heading out to meet the crowd and take his seat cage side. So if you were ever wondering what White was doing during the prelims, now you know. Number four, the Vitor Belfort incident. The TRT era in the UFC was one that was certainly a bit sus, as the kids would say. And one such fishy tale from that period was revealed in 2015, long after the fact by veteran MMA journo Josh Gross. A questionable lab test result for a fighter with a questionable past, an accidental email, and a promotion coming off one of the biggest disasters in their entire history. It's a hell of a story. It went down like this. In late August 2012, UFC 151 gets canceled as a result of Dan Henderson getting injured and John Jones refusing to fight Chael Sonnen. It costs the UFC an estimated $40 million, according to Dave Meltzer. Jones is then paired with TRT using Vitor Belfort to headline UFC 152 30 days later. 21 days before the card, Belfort has a blood test done at an anti-aging clinic, and three days later, his results are flagged by LabCorp as having high free testosterone levels. These results were then sent to a paralegal who was meant to forward them to the UFC brass, but instead sent the email containing the lab results to 29 random fighters and managers. Oops! Shortly thereafter, an email came to the recipients telling them to disregard the first email, then a second which told them to delete it immediately, then a third from then-VP Lawrence Epstein, giving them a legal notice that they would seek, quote, all available judicial remedies against them should they share the information. So what happened as a result of Belfort having suspect test results three weeks before headlining a major pay-per-view that was only a month after a massive disaster canceled their previous show and cost the UFC millions? He fought John Jones, of course. Now, it's unclear what happened. The UFC may have looked into the results and determined that everything was okay. Who knows? But what we do know is that he fought at 152 three weeks later. Number three, what matchmakers really do. That antitrust lawsuit just keeps giving us gold. At the class certification hearing in 2019, longtime matchmaker and UFC Hall of Famer Joe Silva took the stand to talk about the matchmaking process as he experienced it during his time with Zufa. And a whole bunch of interesting details came about. For example, being the matchmaker doesn't mean you're just picking fights for the cards. Silva served in that capacity of course, but was also in charge of scouting new talent to sign, signing said new talent, and the divvying out of bonuses, both of the night and on the Monday afterwards, suggesting, quote, locker room bonuses for various fighters on the card based on their performances. Silva, along with Sean Shelby, handled 85% of all fighter contracts, leaving only the big-time main eventers to Dana and the Fertitas. Joe would also book the majority of the card outside the main and co-main events without any need for a higher-up to approve of any of the bouts. We've spoken at length in the past about a tactic Silva would use that was discovered in Well Discovery to deal with fighters who refused to renew their contracts, placing them on the prelims against a tough opponent on their way out. But his testimony at this hearing also gave us insight into how he factored pay for contracts, such as a fighter making a name for themselves elsewhere or being more accomplished before they sign. And in an email to Ricardo Almeida's manager, even explaining that because payouts were made public, he would have to justify his decisions to all the other fighters, and couldn't just give someone extra cash based on their potential alone. It was a very fascinating look at the job, and there's certainly a lot more that goes with matching making than just making fights. Number two, the Fertitta's unique conflict resolution plan. While Brother Frank was not one to spend a lot of time in the spotlight while the Fertitas were the owners of the UFC, Lorenzo was often seen at events, did interviews, and was the well-known Shao Kahn to Dana Shang Tsung, at least amongst the hardcore fan base. Now, if you've ever seen the man, you know he likes to work out. He's a bit of a fitness buff, you might say. Having met him once, I can tell you he's built like a goddamn Marvel superhero. But both Fertitas are big into fitness, reportedly working out together six times a week, every single morning 
for two hours. And one of their favorite things ever is jujitsu. Here's where things get wild. Written into their contracts as co-owners of the UFC was a clause that said any unresolvable dispute would be settled by a sport jujitsu match refereed by Dana White, with the winner being the one who scored the most points or was able to secure a submission. So they were legally obligated to roll if there was a dispute. It's the craziest thing I've ever heard. This isn't a local pizza shop. The UFC was a multi-billion dollar property. As it turns out, though, the brothers were apparently about as agreeable on things as it gets, and such a match never needed to take place. Very likely only written into their contracts as a bit of a joke, considering they were so much on the same page. But I'm sure that would have been a hell of a story had it actually gone down. Number one, fighter contracts. For ages, the coveted UFC contract details had been largely kept under wraps. But as a result of the Eddie Alvarez-Bellator contract dispute going into litigation, as well as that pesky antitrust lawsuit, we now have a ton of details about these documents and how they may look for each fighter. The average length, according to an expert witness for the UFC who was given 2,500 contracts to analyze, the most common duration is two years or less. Over 80% of all fighters fell into that range. Essentially, all of their contracts also have a champion's clause, meaning if you win the belt, you automatically extend your contract for a year or three fights, whichever comes first. If you are injured or retire, the UFC has the right to extend your contract for the length of the injury or retirement, or six months, whichever is longer, which is kind of funny when you think about retirements. Oh, but once you're done, about 50% of all contracts have a 90-day exclusive negotiation period, while nearly 100% have a one-year right-to-match clause, meaning if you go somewhere else, the UFC has the right to match that offer and retain you if they are so inclined. Then there's the rights and privileges. The UFC can use a fighter's likeness for just about anything for just about the rest of time. Fighters, however, cannot utilize any UFC IP, like logos, or even referring to themselves as UFC star outside their obligations without express written consent. Oh, and technically, they can take back your physical belt if they want to, and you have to cough it up within 48 hours. Fighters can't advertise for competing brands, no shock there, and it would appear that all fighters fly economy to the cards. They're also only given one or two extra tickets, so the whole team's not flying there on the UFC's dime. Honestly, there's way too much to go through, but those were some of the highlights. Why haven't you heard most of these details from fighters themselves? Probably because it's written into their contracts that they're not allowed to talk about them. Just want to say a big thank you to Crypto.com for joining the team as an official sponsor. We're incredibly stoked for the world's fastest growing crypto app to be helping us create the content we love and guide us through the expanding world of cryptocurrencies. If you fancy joining us, you can use the link crypto.com slash app slash MMA on point for a $25 crow deposit upon sign up and after reserving a metal visa card, start trading and withdraw. This will allow you to buy and sell crypto at true cost and trade with confidence on the world's fastest and most secure crypto exchange. Big ol' shout out to my dude Luke Taylor for editing this video together. You can find him and his awesome digital art on Twitter at CoolToMe underscore. A big, big thank you to Ben Rosette who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro. Check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his Instagram and Twitter page at Ben Rosette. All right, that's all I got for you. Thanks for watching. Please like, subscribe, and have a wonderful day.